Thank you to Leslie Benjamin our, and our chancel choir for that beautiful anthem. Our text of scripture from the book of Jeremiah is about a homecoming of sorts, but one that's in the future. I'm going to read, it's a rather long text of scripture, so I'm going to cherry pick so that you don't all decide whether I'm pronouncing these names correctly or not. There's a good deal of repetitiveness in there, so I'm just going to read some of the verses. Listen for God's word for you. Now the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of King Zedekiah of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, at that time the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah, where King Zedekiah of Judah had confined him. And Jeremiah said, The Lord, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of your uncle Shalom, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. And I bought the field from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? O Lord, the earth and the fullness thereof belongs to you. We have come here seeking what you alone provide. And we ask that in these next moments together, as we listen for your word, that you would stake a claim in our hearts. For we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. That beautiful anthem about coming home. Well, two of our three children this summer have come to new homes. They've been engaged in real estate decisions of their own. Our daughter and her husband just recently moved up to the San Jose area and to the dot-com world of Silicon Valley, arguably the most expensive real estate in the country. And our son and his family have just purchased a home in Franklin Township, Tennessee. It's a suburb of Nashville. And Nashville is one of the fastest growing cities in the country. So in July, they moved into their new home, which is a real fixer-upper. Mom and Dad provided a little bit of the down payment and a lot of the manual labor to move all of their worldly possessions while cleaning and stripping wallpaper and removing overgrown landscape, all in 95% humidity. I tell you, we sweat like football players in an August conditioning practice. 
We cut down trees. We loaded appliances up and down the stairs and generally did whatever was needed. And then we called it our vacation. <laughs> now, real estate purchases always require some amount of optimism about the future. Nobody wants to buy a home that's going to lose value. Once again, following the mortgage crisis of 2007 and 8, Americans seem to be spending more than they are saving. And not just on real estate. I can't blame our kids for trying to move forward with their lives. They have growing families. They have kids that need an education. And I've heard some who've described the spending habits of Americans in particular in this way. The trouble is that too many people are spending money they haven't yet earned for things they don't need to impress people they don't like. <laughs> Perhaps you have heard of or watched the Property Brothers. These are twin brothers from Canada who have a reality television show on HGTV. Drew and Jonathan Scott. They're both six foot five inches. Drew is a real estate expert who scouts out neglected houses and negotiates the purchases. And then his brother Jonathan, who's a licensed contractor, renovates the houses. And to get together, the Property Brothers help families buy and transform fixer-uppers into dream homes on a strict timeline and a strict budget. Now, Jeremiah, in our text today, by contrast, is not operating on a strict timeline or a budget. Predicting the future is always tricky business, whether it's economic forecasting or weather forecasting or trying to figure out how much college tuition is going to cost when your kids or grandkids are ready to attend. It's simply difficult to predict the future. There are lots of predictions going around today on what's going to happen in this election and what's going to happen to the country after the election. Prophets in the Old Testament came to be known as prophets because of their ability to predict the future. And they were more often than not rather pessimistic about what was coming. When the rest of the world seemed to be optimistic the prophets were uncovering a rather shaky foundation upon which the national life rested. My home state of Minnesota 10 years ago had a bridge on a freeway collapse. You may remember it. The engineering reports on that bridge warned that there were stress fractures that had compromised the integrity of the steel supports for that bridge but that was largely disregarded. And the traffic just kept coming until finally the bridge collapsed. Thankfully, there weren't too many cars on the bridge at the time. Similarly, the prophets in the Old Testament warned of the stress fractures in the support beams of the entire society. They pointed out injustice. They pointed out exploitation. They called for a return to faithfulness, for redressing the wrongs that undermined the safety of the entire civilization. And they sought to disabuse people of their false hopes. 
that their wealth and that military power was going to save the day. The prophets were known for forecasting trouble, and they chronicled the decline and the fall of the society. But today, in the story we read in Jeremiah, here is a prophet who's an optimist. Precisely just when the rest of the world had slipped into tremendous pessimism about the future, Jeremiah takes action and speaks a word of hope. Twenty-six centuries ago, on the eve of the fall of Jerusalem, as the armies of Egypt and Judah and Babylon position for advantage and the country is being torn apart by war, Jeremiah makes a real estate investment. Not what people ordinarily do during a siege when the armies are camped all around the city. As we all know, some investments either pay off big or they're complete bust. And Jeremiah's either incredibly stupid or he knows something that no one else knows about the future. It was, to say the least, a long-term investment strategy. And in the midst of the worst of times, Jeremiah exercises a right of redemption and he buys land from his cousin as a sign and a symbol of his optimism about the future. It was probably land which had been collateral on a loan that had gone bad and was about to transfer ownership. And Jeremiah, as the next of kin, had the right under the law to redeem it and keep it in the family. So Jeremiah's purchase was a little like a Frenchman buying real estate in Paris just as the Nazis are entering the city during World War II. Or it's a little bit like a Syrian Christian family buying real estate in Aleppo just as the ISIS forces are coming into the city. There's nothing in the situation itself to suggest that this is a prudent or a good idea. What a contradiction. Circumstances would lead one to conclude that an investment like this is just sheer folly. But here's the thing. You see, present circumstances don't always point us in the direction of reality. And the future doesn't always belong to the temporary set of circumstances we're in because God is still at work in the world. And it's faith that claims the future belongs not to the forces of nature, or not to economic uncertainty, not to the politics of nations, not to military might. Necessary as all of those are, influential as they can be, they simply don't determine all things. Faith alone claims that in the final analysis, the future belongs to God. In spite of the breakdown of every earthly hope, yet there's hope. There's hope in a future that belongs to our Lord. 
So Jeremiah invests in that future, a future he cannot see, a future he will not realize. And he believes that that future will come to pass solely because God has promised it. Shining through the darkness of exile, the refugee crisis of that day, is this piercing ray of hope. Hope that's based not on the present circumstances, but built upon the purposes and the nature of God Almighty, that God known to us most in Jesus Christ our Lord. And this ray of light in the darkness is for the entire world. Now in every age, there are those who believe in more than they can see. There are those who build for more than they will realize in their lifetime. At the time of the American Revolution, a new vision for how to govern of the people, by the people, and for the people was emerging. Benjamin Franklin summed up the apprehension of the signers of the Declaration when he said, we must all hang together, or most assuredly we shall all hang separately. Apprehension? You bet. Because predicting the future is tricky business. But believing in a future that belongs to God, we can with conviction and determination of our faith turn in that direction of what is yet to come. And we can turn with confidence, even and especially in difficult times. We may not be able to predict the future, but we can prepare for the future. On October 1st, 1946, an organized program was launched here at the San Marino Community Church just a month after the groundbreaking for this sanctuary in which we worship today. Specifics were discussed at the congregational meeting describing an every-member canvas by a committee of 45 who called on the homes of every member. According to Betty Carriel's history of the church, and the Church Women's Association had contributed a total of $4,360 in 1946 to the building of the church. And the sixth birthday of this church... We're about to celebrate the 75th, but the sixth birthday was held in the cafeteria at Huntington School, middle school. And the vote at that meeting was once again, no construction until the total funds were in place. Dr. P. Martin Baker was no doubt disappointed that construction would not yet begin, but he went cheerfully ahead with concerns having to do with spiritual growth of the members collectively and individually, writes Betty Carriel. But when a charter member of the church of significant means discovered that the plans for the tower out here had been altered, he stormed into Dr. Baker's office waving a $25,000 check he had pledged to the campaign for its construction. Construction of his tower. 
Dr. Baker listened courteously, and then he picked up his hat to go on house calls for the afternoon, leaving the check in the visitor's hands, but not before explaining that the church belongs only to God. No mortal has ownership. Bricks and mortar do not make a church. Ministry and mission and the Spirit of Christ make a church. And as a loyal member, he should be willing to support not only the construction, but also the mission and ministry of the church just as generously. And with that, Dr. Baker departed to make house calls that afternoon. Well, that $25,000 check that had been waving in the wind wound up a few weeks later in the offering plate, along with another one to match it marked for the general fund. Now, by anyone's standard, $50,000 in 1946 was a lot of money. An investment in the future from which you and I benefit today. That generation had been to, through two world wars and the Great Depression, and yet they decided in the midst of those present circumstances to make an investment in the future with the hope that God is still at work in the world and we can make a difference. Let's not lose faith in that vision. And let's invest today in the long-term future of our world, of God's redemption for the world, so that 75 years from now, there will be another generation of San Marino Community Church members who will be able to celebrate and worship here. This is the world that God so loved. This is the one which Jesus came to redeem. It's our history that God has entered. It's our world. And God has placed us in this world, and each one of us is invited to buy a piece of real estate in the future. A piece of real estate we cannot see for ourselves. So what investment are you prepared to make for the future? I know if you're like me, you've been saving for the future. Well, maybe it's time to spend a little on it. Amen.